very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, a great presentation that you don't want to miss, I highly encourage that you subscribe. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and click on the subscribe button. And if you need to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, just go to the contact button of our website. I'd love to hear from you. As we approach the 52nd anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, we continue searching for clues that may once and for all elucidate what happened that Friday afternoon on November 22, 1963, at 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, on Elm Street in Dealey Plaza, Dallas, Texas. What if I told you that President Kennedy did not die after all? What if I told you that something life-changing happened that changed him as a human being throughout his presidency? He became a different person, a better human, who realized his goals did not coincide with those who put him in power. What if he was presented with two choices because he was no longer allowed to lead. Choice number one, be killed and become a martyr. Choice number two, pretend to be killed and become a martyr. Live the rest of your life elsewhere. If you are ready to be shocked with new information about the alleged assassination of our 35th president, then stay with us. Tonight's special guest will help us dissect more of JFK's assassination He's a veteran of Sanitas, our sister radio program. His name is Brian David Anderson, who became a self-taught researcher, inventor, and scientist after 20 years as a freelance investigative writer and photojournalist trained at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. We're making the transition to investigating physics and chemistry. Anderson's focus was on discovering the simple truths of our reality rather than just achieving a passing grade that is the core emphasis of traditional education. And to learn more about Brian David Anderson, visit his website, mygodamhit.com, which is also linked at ours. And hello, Brian, and welcome to Veritas this time. How are you? Oh, very good. Really great to be here. Likewise, when we did our interview back uh, on Sanitas over a year ago, I realized that you also are an investigative journalist, and you investigate a lot of the JFK assassination. So I said back then, we need to bring you back once the anniversary gets closer. And this is exactly where we are. It's three days away. I believe this show is airing on the 19th. The 22nd is just three days away. Where were you during the JFK assassination? And what have you uncovered that other researchers have not? Well, uh, first off, I will go back a little bit more on my background uh, that was not in the sure. bio that you gave. Uh, I was 11 years old in uh, Irving, Texas in 1963. 
And so I went through a lot of the, uh, all of the events, but basically almost on a live basis. My father worked in downtown Dallas at the Simons building on Elm or on uh, Main Street. And uh, he actually saw the motorcade go by and then make a right turn on Houston and, of course, then the left turn on to Elm Street. And uh, uh, he was a very ardent uh, Republican, uh, disliked Kennedy immensely. Uh, on the reverse of that, my mother loved Kennedy, so I was kind of like in this political split family. And uh, so after uh, everything occurred and then we walked home, my brother and I, I was then in the fifth grade, he was in the third grade, uh, we went home and uh, there was my father laid out on the couch, just totally crying. I've never seen a man cry as hard as he did. And um, so, you know, it, was, it made a lasting type of impression. But the probably because of the the split political type of thing is that um, it gave me a thing where I did not look at him as a hero, nor did I look at him as a villain. I just looked at him as a, a human being type of thing. And for years, I did nothing <clears throat> about investigating. Uh, and I, I came across numerous things uh, while I was living in Dallas. Uh, that uh, people that I knew and I, I actually uh, got pulled into doing some photographs uh, of the school book depository inside in 1972. I had all these connections. Uh, our two neighbor two doors down from us uh, was one of the individuals that was uh, working on the body that rolled into the, to, uh, 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 Parkland Hospital. He was doing the tracheotomy. And so we had all of these various connections. And for me, it started off in 2007, uh, moved from California to uh, Florida. And on the way through, I uh, was going through the... Um, just one second. Uh, Let me just ask you about your father when you said that you found him crying. And mm -hmm. since he was not a fan of, of Kennedy, was it because he felt that the innocence of the United States had been broken that day? Oh, I, it's that, that level and so many levels. Uh, you know, I think my father had to actually face his, uh, literally as almost his hate. He had to face his own emotional issues. And so, but, and then basically also the entire country also. So it was on many levels that he actually, that was, you know, causing him to have such an emotional outburst. Uh, because, uh, again, there was a, you know, the whole bitter election and everything that went on. And so there were just all these emotions that, that f spilled out. And knowing that, again, uh, beyond the innocence, uh, it was uh, basically uh, the, the shift. I mean, everybody felt the shift. And we knew something happened, but you really couldn't put your finger on it. And I think that was also uh, what everybody was reacting to, and especially my father, because, again, he had just seen him roll down the street uh, from his seventh floor window of his office building. And uh, so, again, uh, it, but again, for myself, it was, uh, again, a very important type of uh, event. Uh, and it made a lasting type of impression. And it really didn't do anything until 2007 when we made this trip. Uh, my uh, uh, now wife and I made a trip from California to Florida. We moved. And on the way through, we visited my mother. And then we went to the school book depository. And I started looking at everything and et cetera. And then there was just so many things that, you know, were just not right, what I was seeing in this museum. So when we got to Florida, I started doing a, I thought, well, I'll just write a little story and that's it. And this just kept on going and kept on going and kept on going. And it turned into a book. It turned into a documentary. And uh, so, uh, you know, now um, it's an evolution that has occurred. Uh, in 2010, I also took on a partner. Uh, this individual is in the uh, mainstream media. Uh, has to stay unidentified, but then did a lot of footwork. So when I use the word we, it is also a lot of investigation that's been done by myself and this other person. And uh, it still is right now still a main media, uh, mainstream media and not cannot really come forward right now because there would be repercussions uh, for uh, being involved in this project. So are you saying that his name will be kept confidential until then? 
Uh, yeah, until for until he wants to come forward, and but right now, uh, it'll stay confidential. But he has been a uh, or she uh, has been a very very important type of person involved in all of this. And uh, uh, again, uh, uh, what we're going to do here today is very important to, to be focused on just as the car turned on Elm Street and until it arrived in Parkland Hospital. That's what we're going to focus on mostly. We may get on some other subjects and et cetera later on in the second hour. But right now, what we want to do is just what happened, all the events that occurred, or as much as we can to cover the real key highlights of what occurred between right when it turned on Elm Street until it arrived in Parkland Hospital. And for the listeners, for your convenience, we have a link. If you go to our website, veritasradio.com, look for these, this interview within the guest page for Brian David Anderson on Veritas. And there will be a link there. If you click on it, take a moment, go there. If you're driving, of course, wait until you get home or, or you get to a place where you can actually see this and click on it. That way, you'll be able to follow this presentation with some visuals, some imagery that Brian has provided as a courtesy. Is this the best way to go, Brian? Yes, basically, again, from now on is to go ahead, if you can, uh, the listener, is to go to this uh, My God, I'm Hit, and then forward slash Veritas. uh, And uh, we have now a series of photographs, or they're actually, uh, you know, GIF files. Uh, Below each one is you can also download it as a high-quality PDF. You can do it for your own investigations if you want to present this to other people uh, for your own files, that type of thing. It's free. There is no uh, type of copyright or anything. This is just basically for information basis. I am not selling a book on this particular type of program, or am I doing any type of documentary uh, type of sale right now. This is just strictly we have the anniversary, and hey, let's look at this information. Okay, so it's mygotamhit.com forward slash veritas dot html. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. M y g o d i m h i t dot com and then very and then forward slash veritas. So when we veritas dot html. If you just yeah, click veritas, veritas, you veritas. won't go anywhere. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Veritas dot html. Okay, so the, what we first now we'll give it just a second here for people to kind of find that web page, bring it up, and uh, one of the major things also that it's uh, we need to discuss first is where has been the JFK investigation since the day that it occurred until now, and there's basically two camps that uh, it's been divided into those that supported the Warren Commission and stated that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. And then the other group saying no, uh, the, uh, that there was a conspiracy and there was more persons involved. And some people even say that uh, Oswald himself was actually not involved. He was just strictly a patsy and that's all he was. So there's those two groups that are now divided up. But they have a common denominator. And that is that they both then said that uh, the, uh, the president was shot and then he died. And uh, they basically, for me, when I started investigating all this, the evidence there actually pointed in something a totally different type of direction. And that's what we're going to discuss today. We're going to hopefully look here as just what we're looking at as facts. Now, uh, with these facts, we now come up with another logical type of conclusion. So uh, we start off first off with the first fact and that is with we say on in the image there on uh, this webpage it says JFK one, and off to the left we see a, a confidential report that was made by the Secret Service, and uh, this was a whole summation of everything that occurred in Dallas. Uh, you would think this particular type of report would be in the National Archives would be really out there, but it is it was not. Uh, we found this. Uh, in a uh, the LBJ library, it is not buried. You can get any type of copy of it. Uh, there's not, there's no really copies of it on the internet whatsoever. So I had to call over to uh, the LBJ library, and I got this confidential report. And basically, it's all the statements by the Secret Servicemen, and uh, it's it's just absolutely mind blowing of some of the stuff that's in there, and. Uh, 
one of the, another fact that is very important is that there were two Secret Service agents who were not in Dallas, and this is very important. First off, there was Floyd Boring. He was an SS supervisor who had always been on all of the trips, et cetera. But for this particular trip in the South, which also included Florida and Texas, et cetera, Floyd Boring was not part of the trip. There was also another key person by the name of Gerald Ben. He was also the, really the personal bodyguard of JFK, and he was not in Dallas. And those are two key people. Had they been there, probably the, the events would have never occurred because Ben would have been right next to JFK as he was going down uh, uh, Elm Street. And uh, nobody, no supervisor, anybody else would have pulled him off. So uh, that's really key that those two people were not there. Why weren't they, they there? Uh, they never really gave any reasons why not uh, when they gave their testimonies to the Warren Commission and to other subsequent uh, the House uh, Committee on Assassinations. Uh, they never really gave a reason. <laughs> What's interesting, though, is we'll go back to Floyd Boring. Uh, keep this in mind now is that what he said to the Warren Commission is that I was at home washing my windows. That's literally a quote that he says. And we're going to see as, uh, as we go here further on, was he actually in Dallas? And so uh, because of these two people not being there, they then had to pull in another agent. And if we can now go down one more, just scroll down and you'll sort of go to JFK2. They brought in a person by the name of Glenn Bennett. And again, a very interesting type of individual. Uh, this trip that they made to the South, JFK and the whole group, this was his first time in the field. He was totally a pencil pusher. He had no field experience whatsoever. And this was his first time to be out actually guarding the president. And so because of that, uh, him being a rookie, he didn't have the same training as the rest of them. And so here's the most important thing. When the first shot was fired, all the rest of the agents turned immediately to where they thought they heard the shot fire coming, you know, where, where it was coming from, which was a school book depository. They all looked over their shoulder. And because he was not trained in the same way, he turned to his left. And as you can see in this picture, he had a direct line of sight to JFK. And then he wrote down his observation, and then later on he typed it. And this is a really interesting statement that he makes. And he says, immediately upon hearing the supposed firecrack, firecracker looked at the boss's car at this exact, exact time, I saw a shot that hit the boss about four inches down from the right shoulder. And so this statement has caused a lot of problems for people, especially in the, the areas of um, uh, persons that believe that there was a conspiracy. And what's interesting is the Warren Commission uh, did not call Bennett to make a testimony to the Warren Commission. So he did not testify at the Warren Commission at all. But they took his statement and entered it into the record. But what's interesting, though, is that they modified his statement. They didn't put the whole thing in. All they did is after the word shot that hit the boss, they put a period and the rest of it all got dropped. So they manipulated his statement. They basically modified it. And as a partial truth, and a partial truth is no different than a lie. So basically, the Warren Commission then uh, dropped the whole thing about four inches down from the right shoulder. This makes sense now why the Secret Service report was buried in the LBJ library because, and for years. Uh, nobody even knew it was there. And so, because again, then they would also see uh, what the Warren Commission did uh, by modifying this statement. And then also other authors that have uh, supported the Warren Commission, they do the same thing. They will cite uh, Glenn Bennett, but then they modify a statement. What is interesting then about the people that go into the conspiracy theory, they go totally into cognitive dissonance. They, they do not even address the issue. They will just totally not even like Glenn Bennett. It didn't even exist. His statement doesn't even exist. And so they just totally ignore it, which is, again, as I said, is a really case of what we call cognitive dissonance, which means is you're given facts 
and they are so stressful to you and your reality that the best way for you to do is just ignore them. When you mentioned the uh, the Warren Commission, I always think of Alan Dulles mm-hmm. and the fact that Kennedy himself fired him, and then he became part of the Warren Commission. <laughs> Did that make sense to you? No, no. It's, again, uh, the, the, there's and there's so many conflicts of interest that were of, of people who were on the Warren Commission. That's a whole nother. It could become a whole nother program of the people that they appointed to. The Warren Commission were just ridiculous. Right. Uh, they they did not have any law enforcement people. They had no scientists. Uh, they were all political appointees. Uh, so basically, now this uh, this statement now is it cries out and says, okay, is there anything to support or corroborate this statement? And that's where we're going to go now. We're going into a whole nother exploratory type of area to find out. If there is any evidence, is there any supporting testimonies? Is there any physical evidence? And yes, there is. So the next uh, one we go down to is we now go to JFK 3. There was an eyewitness that was named June Dishong, and she was standing uh, 20 feet away from JFK uh, on his side of the car when the first shot was fired. So we have now Glenn Bennett was at the six o'clock position of JFK. This June Dishong was at the three o'clock position. She immediately went up to her office where she was working in downtown Dallas and wrote in her diary. The diary then stayed in her drawer till till 1998. When she died, the uh, family found this diary. And, of course, then they went and looked at the Sapruta film and they could see their mother. They, they didn't even know that she was even there. Uh, this was totally a shock, uh, finding this diary. So then the, the diary was donated to uh, the Schuylkill Depository Museum. And she, what she writes in her diary is very important. She says, I'm now quoting this, she said, his arm slipped off the side of the car. She, he's now the first shot fired and his arm slipped off the side of the car. And that's all she really said. And that's all really, and it makes sense is because as the car is now passing, Bennett sees the the bullet goes into the right shoulder. She's right there. And now basically he gets hit in the shoulder and his arm slips off the side of the car. Boom, he gets hit. And now he's going down on, on with his right shoulder with that shot in the right shoulder. He is now uh, slipping off and going inside the car. And what she didn't see is also very important, and we'll discuss that later on because it also corroborates every, all the other eyewitnesses on, on Elm Street. So basically now we have exactly what somebody who was standing in her position would see. Boom, the fire goes off. He gets hit in the arm. He, she cannot see then uh, uh, what Kennedy is doing with his left hand, and that's very important. The next one we go now to is JFK-4, <clears throat> and there was a person by the name of Roy Kellerman. He was the person in charge in Dallas, and he was in the left, or pardon me, the right passenger seat of the presidential limousine. When we refer to it, we also can refer it to as the 100X. That's what the, the Secret Service called the, secret, the uh, presidential limousine was the 100X. Roy Kellerman was now in the uh, uh, passenger seat, and he made a statement to the FBI uh, on November 27, 1963. Very, very important what he said. He said upon – and this is now the agent writing, writing about what Kellerman told him. So he said upon turning his head to the left, he observed President Kennedy with his left hand, okay, in back of him, appearing to be reaching to a point on his right shoulder. So now Kellerman is at his 12 o'clock position, at JFK's 12 o'clock position. We have now almost a three-dimensional view of that first shot, and it's very, very important. So Bennett sees the bullet go into his right shoulder. Dishong sees his arm slip off the side of the car. She cannot see because of her position. She couldn't see that left hand coming up to his right shoulder. She wasn't there. She didn't have the right angle and view, but Kellerman did. And so 
now we have this 3D view, which now totally blows away everything of what's believed by both Warren Commission and also what's believed by uh, many of the um, persons that are counter to the Warren Commission, is the first shot actually appears to have then hit on the right shoulder of JFK. So where are we leading with all this? Where is this all going to now? And what's important now is that we, is there any photographic proof or statements that, uh, that back this up? And we're going to get into that in just a moment because we now want to spend another little bit of time here on the next uh, image, and that is JFK 5. Roy Kellerman also made a statement to the FBI. He made it in his Secret Service report and he also made this same statement uh, in his uh, Warren Commission testimony. Uh, the, the statement of him to the what he said to the FBI about JFK grabbing for his shoulder with his left hand, he did not make that statement in the FBI, in the Secret Service report, nor did he do it in the Warren Commission. And I believe again he was probably told not to do so. But now another statement that he said in all three of them is when the first shot was fired, he heard President Kennedy shout, my God, I'm hit. And that's where, again, the title of my books and title of the uh, documentaries all come from is uh, from the statement made by Kellerman where he heard JFK shout, my God, I'm hit. The Warren Commission tried to challenge him on this, and he said, well, you know, I am trained to only listen or to listen to the voice of the president over, he said, crowds. He said, I can hear him almost whisper. That's the way I'm trained. Because, again, there is uh, people said, well, uh, Conley didn't say anything. And Nell, uh, Nell Conley, his wife, didn't say anything. And Jackie has never said that uh, he, she heard her husband say, my God, I'm hit. But the, the thing is, though, is that uh, when Jackie Kennedy went up and did her Warren Commission testimony, they never asked her. So, again, uh, if they probably would ask her, did you hear something, it would have been interesting what her response was. So uh, uh, I believe it has a lot of credibility of Kellerman saying that he heard, my God, I'm hit. And as you can see here on this image, we have the actual Warren Commission illustration of what they determine is the bullet that went through the throat. We also now look at a Dr. Robert McClellan, the MD. The body that rolled into uh, to, uh, Parkland Hospital, uh, he was in the emergency room and he held the forceps on the throat wound of the victim. And uh, as the other doctors were now doing their operation to try to get the uh, tracheotomy and try to get the throat wound going and get so the, the victim could breathe. Uh, and I interviewed uh, Robert McClellan on two occasions, and actually then uh, my partner then actually went out to his house and actually then talked to him. And um, we then asked him on one of the interviews, we said, well, you know, according to your medical uh, observations, could the person, could the, the, that, that wound that was caused in the throat, could anybody say anything? Could they shout? Could they even whisper? And he said, no way. He said they would be, you know, there's no way they could make any type of sound. So then I pulled out the statement made by Kellerman. And I said, here's what uh, Kellerman said. He said, after the first shot, he heard, my God, I'm hit. And the doctor was like, you know, totally confused. <laughs> I mean, this is like, no, you know, no, he said that couldn't happen. He kind of backtracked a little bit. He said, no, he said that, that I, that's just, this doesn't make any sense. So here we have a, a contradiction. Here is one doctor saying there's no way he could be talking. And yet here's Kellerman saying, uh, yeah, I heard him say, my God, I'm hit. But a person who's shot on the shoulder that makes perfect sense that, yeah, boom, he's got hit. And now uh, he's reacting and saying, my God, I'm hit. And he's going with his left hand up to his uh, right shoulder and shouting, my God, I'm hit. Makes a tremendous amount of sense. Why did, discre so, why did discrepancy, the, the Secret Service agent saying that he was shot in the shoulder and then the Warren Commission stating that he was shot, you know, that he came through the throat? Well, basically, again, because, again, you'll see where we're going with this because okay. they, they could not have this left hand. They could not uh, say – and, and Kellerman didn't say he got shot in the shoulder. What he just said is that I saw his left hand going to his shoulder. So I okay. don't want to misquote Kellerman. 
All he did is made his observations that when the first shot fired, he heard, my God, I'm hit. And then he turned around. And as he, as he was turning around, he saw the president with his left hand grabbing to a point on his right shoulder. But if he was, if he was, uh, if he was able to utter the words, my God, I'm hit, that means that he was not shot in the throat. Exactly. And that totally blows everything all away. Okay. So the whole Warren Commission, the whole thing all falls apart. And then also uh, there is a key piece of evidence uh, that we have now encouraged and trying to get this tested. As you will see there, Dr. McClellan is holding a shirt. That's the shirt he wore the day uh, that he work, uh, was working on the throat of the victim that was brought into Parkland Hospital. And there is a blood stain on it. So ideally then is that we would like to do some sort of comparison test. There is a test that you can do, though, where we, if we could get that blood and we could then test it. And, and there is DNA testing now. What they could do is to test for the eye and hair color of an individual. They can now determine that by, a, by blood. So if this blood turns out and the person has brown eyes and brown hair, that the person that bled on Dr. McClellan is not him. But if now if he comes out with blue eyes and red hair, then of course now that's more of a likelihood of that being that that was the president. But uh, that's one test that can be done. There is another blood sample, however, uh, that I believe that would be uh, uh, fascinating to compare it to. You would take that blood test uh, of that shirt, that stain, and then now we go to the next uh, image, and that's JFK 6. But what are you saying? About the, the blood, what exactly uh, are, you, do you, are you inferring? Inferring is is does is the blood that was on that shirt did it actually belong to JFK or was okay. it somebody else? And that's what we're getting here now. Is we could find that out, we go to image six, JFK six, and I called up to the National Archives. I wanted to get a hold of the jacket. Of course, now when we have all this other evidence, the key thing is, well, what about the jacket? It should show it. So I called up to the National Archives and uh, wanting to purchase all of the clothing. And I said, I wanted the latest pictures. I said, I want the latest pictures of JFK's jacket. And so the lady was sitting there, okay. And she goes, well, you know, you really need to have the FBI uh, exhibit uh, 393. I said, you, you know, that's a really good picture also. And I said, okay. Well, I said, I didn't respond. I said, no, I'd rather have something. And so we went on. I ended up you know, you know, paying like $800 for all these pictures because they were very, very high quality things. And during the entire conversation, this lady kept saying to me, you need to look at or you need to get uh, the FBI picture. And she said this like three or four times. So finally, at the end of our conversation, I bought these pictures and everything. She said, well, you know what? You know, if, if you get the uh, Warren Commission uh, jacket uh, thing, then I'll, I'll throw it in for 50 bucks. And I said, well, okay, you know, fine. And, and then after I hung up, I started redoing the conversation in my head and I went, what was going on there? She kept insisting, insisting upon the Warren Commission 393. So when the pictures came in on the, the disc, the very first thing I did is I went and looked at 393 and I lightened it up. Uh, that's all I did. There was no other types of manipulations. Uh, people can, you can do the same thing, get the same picture at the National Archives. And lo and behold, look, what do we look at on the right shoulder? We see then an obvious stain with a hole on it. And then you look at the, well, the bullet hole where supposedly it went through the neck. No and blood. There's no blood. There's no blood. So it makes more sense. Here he gets shot in the shoulder. Now JFK leans over to his right, or to, pardon me, to his left after he gets shot. So then he's not really per se sitting up that much. When the first blood is coming out, he's actually leaned over. So that's why the stain actually is going up the shoulder rather than down is because he was actually laying to his side. And so uh, here we have now... Uh, the physical evidence, and it will be interesting, is to take this blood stain and compare it to the blood stain on the shirt. I will say there's probably a 99% chance that the two bloods will not match. There are two different blood types. Uh, the person that wore this jacket was JFK. The person that bled on that uh, shirt of Robert McClellan 
with somebody different. And we'll go and I will now give the evidence what I feel uh, uh, indicates that is now the, the remainders of the pictures. And the basically, we're looking at evidence. I don't mean to jump ahead, but was JFK instantly killed, in your opinion, or did he take some time to die and perhaps arrived alive at the hospital? Uh, well, again, if he was shot on the shoulder, then where's that shoulder wound? So now we're going to get into other things about that head wound. Okay. We're going to break that head wound down and supposed head wound and who actually then arrived with a head wound uh, in Parkland Hospital. Well, again, we're, as you said, we're jumping ahead a little bit. <clears throat> so now the next uh, thing that's very important is that for one year after the incident on Elm Street, we now go to JFK 7. And for one year after the incident on Elm Street, not one Secret Service agent and not one Elm Street eyewitness testified that they observed President Kennedy grab for his throat after the first shot was fired. All government and civilian eyewitnesses state that they saw JFK slump into his seat after the first shot was fired, which again goes with him being shot on the shoulder. That's a very supports it. And uh, so what was happening, and when we see this Sapruder film with him grabbing for his throat, not one eyewitness saw that. So then the first thing now goes up, was the Sapruder film real? Was it manipulated? Hmm. And so uh, the indication we get here is the next one down. We see Dan Rather. I would recommend you go ahead and everybody watch this afterwards. Listen to Dan Rather's statements. The films we saw were taken by an amateur photographer who had a particularly good vantage point just past the building from which the fatal shot was fired. The films show President Kennedy's open black limousine making a left turn off Houston Street onto Elm Street on the fringe of downtown Dallas. A left turn made just below the window in which the assassin was waiting. About 35 yards past the very base of the building, just below the window, President Kennedy could be seen to, to put his right hand up to the side of his head to either brush back his hair or perhaps rub his eyebrow. President Kennedy was sitting on the same side of the car as the building from which the shot came. Mrs. Kennedy was by his side in the jump seat in front of them, Mrs. Connolly, and Governor Connolly, Governor Connolly on the same side of the car as the president and in the front seat, two secret service men. Just as the president put that right hand up to the side of his head, he, you could see him lurch forward. The first shot had hit him. Mrs. Kennedy was looking in another direction and apparently didn't see or sense that first shot or didn't hear it. But Governor Connolly in the seat in front appeared to have heard it, or at least sensed that something was wrong. The governor's coat was open. He, he reached back in this fashion, exposing his white shirt front to the assassin's window. He reached back as if to, to offer aid or ask the president something. At that moment, a shot clearly hit the governor in the front, and he fell back in the seat. Mrs. Connolly immediately threw herself over him in a protective position. In the next instant, with this time Mrs. Kennedy apparently looking on, a second shot, the third total shot, hit the president's head. He, his head could be seen to move violently forward. And Mrs. Kennedy stood up immediately. The president leaned over her way. It appeared that he might have brushed her legs. Mrs. Kennedy then literally went on the top of the trunk of the Lincoln car, put practically her whole body on the trunk. It appeared she might have been on her all fours there, reaching out for the Secret Service man, the lone Secret Service man who was riding on the bumper of the car, the back bumper on Mrs. Kennedy's side. The Secret Service man leaned forward and put his hands on Mrs. Kennedy's shoulder to push her back into the car. She was in some danger, it appeared, of rolling off or falling off. And we described this before, there was some question about what we meant by Mrs. Kennedy being on the trunk of the car. Only she knows, but it appeared that she was trying desperately to, to get the Secret Service man's attention or perhaps to 
helped pull him into the car. The car never stopped. It never paused. In the front seat, a Secret Service man was, was on the telephone. The car picked up speed and disappeared beneath an underpass. How quickly did the Sapruder film make it to the public? I'm just thinking of 9-11. What it were two oh, no, hours. It took, yeah, it took hours for that. But I mean, for, for um, no, I mean, hours to make it. No, uh, it was, it was you know, instantaneous for uh, 9-11. But it right. took almost to actually see the full version of the film. Uh, supposedly it was taken, it was stolen by somebody, uh, a JFK investigator. And then that was somewhere around 1972, 73. So it was almost ten, nine to 10 years before the public actually saw the first film. Wait a second. So all my life, when I see this color, color movie, we didn't see in it. color. You didn't see it back then. No, uh-uh, no, did not see it. I did not see that until I was like a freshman in college. Is that, that right? Yeah. So basically to see the full film. And again, they had 10 years to manipulate it. So what did you see? What did the media show the public back then? Uh, something quite different. This is where, again, we bring up Dan Rather. Okay. This is now, uh, I recommend people watch this little segment after we get done here, but I'm just going to summarize what he saw. And as you can see underneath here is that he viewed the Sapruder film uh, almost like the, on November 25th, 1963. What is fascinating, as you'll see here, is what he doesn't say. And that is he says nothing about JFK grabbing for his throat. And they watched this thing several times. So it's interesting is that probably the film that Dan Rather saw was a non-manipulated version of the Zapruder film. And that's why he did not see uh, a JFK grabbing for his throat. He also indicates that Conley and Kennedy were shot separately. Which, of course, there's the whole big thing in uh, for those persons who may not be uh, familiar with this. There's a thing called the magic bullet theory where one bullet goes down through, uh, comes through JFK's throat and then does all this damage also in John Conley. And they call it the magic bullet. And uh, so his indications by the film he saw is that they were shot separately and that he says nothing. I mean, I'm, that doesn't imply it. He makes no reference whatsoever about JFK grabbing for his throat. So basically, they have to have this throat thing to cover up for the shoulder. And uh, so basically, we now go to JFK 8, and we now look at the frames where JFK is grabbing for his throat. And it looks like uh, the animation artist that worked on this uh, in 1963, they had some abilities uh, but again, they weren't all that good. And it, you can actually see it looks like JFK's arm, his right arm, is coming out of the middle of his shoulder. And by the way, the Sapruder film was uh, the first broadcast was uh, WSN-TV, Chicago, 44, in 1970. Right. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, and we saw still frames of it in Life magazine, and again we saw this is this is actually uh, frames that were taken from Life magazine. Uh, I I bought a magazine uh, back in I think it was sixty three sixty four, uh, and they showed the still frames, and uh, I took it right off of there. So basically, what we're seeing here now, I believe, is a manipulated version of the Sapruder film, and people go, well, no, they couldn't do that then. Well. If, if, if uh, go look at a, a motion picture called um, uh, Mary Poppins, and they uh, it was done in 1961-62, and they had all the abilities to put any type of animation on film itself, so they could actually take a film and then animate it. And there's a whole technolo technology that goes with this. But there's also a lot of other anomalies that we'll bring up about the Sapruder film in just a moment here. I mean, gosh, but, look, look at 1967 or 8, the yeah. uh, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, mm -hmm. probably one of the best science fiction movies of all time, even to this day. And that only happened three, four, five years after the incident. Yeah, so basically they had then this many years where they could manipulate the film. And it was interesting when we go back to there was a another individual uh, that uh, was a government employee uh, that we discovered. And he also watched the Zapruder film uh, like Dan Rather. 
And it was uh, he. Uh, what he testified is he he saw it, and then the Sapruder film went up to Kodak, and when it came back from Kodak, it was totally different. And he says the same thing is that that he did not see JFK grabbing for his throat. So there was also a corroborating uh, witness there that we have that we're working on with. And so again, what we're looking at though is a manipulated uh, Sapruder film. So then we have to kind of like okay. Uh, what is manipulated, what is not, uh, what is the real truth here, what is not. And I, I'm not one of those things that's absolute. Uh, many people go, well, you know, if the Sapruda film is, is, is uh, manipulated, then you got to throw the whole thing out. Just don't even bring it in as evidence whatsoever. And I say, well, no, that's the, these absolutes don't really work. What you have to do is, okay, let's make through this little minefield and make it through here and where they manipulated and where they did not and where it didn't work and where it did, did work. So the keyframes that we're now looking at, we go to, from JFK 8 to JFK 9. The keyframes of the Zapruder film are frames 312 through 313 to 314. They are the most important ones because right at 312 is right before there supposedly is this head wound. And as you can see in 312, as that's very important here, is that the skull remains intact. Look at that. We have a, uh, an explosion off to his side of him, and there is like this circular debris is off to the side of JFK's head, but that doesn't really have anything to do with his head. There's no connecting spout, nothing. So there's an explosion on the right side of his body, but notice that his skull is still totally intact. What in the world was Jackie wearing on her left arm, left hand? Uh, that's where we're going to get on that one too. Okay. So, uh, basically is again, what, what is on that left hand? And so basically, uh, we also look at, uh, uh, Penn and Teller. And there was also another scientist that did it previous to them is actually a friend of JFK's. And what he did is took a melon and taped it with a, uh, uh, uh metal tape. Penn and, and Teller or Edward Teller? Uh, Penn and Teller. Okay. Uh, they did the test, but previous to him, there was another scientist that the did magicians, the same thing. The magicians, you mean? Yeah, and okay. they had a television program called whatever it is uh, on on uh, cable, and so they did this on a, a cable television program, and uh, of course, I was watching it with fascination because what they did is they took the supposed rifle that Carcano, and they shot a melon with the. Uh, uh, the, the rifle. And when you take a melon and you put a uh, metal tape around it, it's supposed to have the same consistency as the skull. So it'll have same reactions, do the same type of thing. And so they shot the uh, uh, melon. And you can see here over on the left, there's all this debris just goes scattering everywhere. Which is exactly what it looks like if you watch the Subruder film. But at the same time, though, is that what it indicates is that, that uh, the, on the Melon to the to the left is supposedly Jackie, and they have the uh, that Pills hat that she was wearing. It literally was blown off, and this is also even the the investigators who um, are counter of the Warren Commission, uh, some very t ones that I really respect. They have always had a problem of why Jackie arrives uh, and uh, in Parkland, and also she's on. Air Force One, and she's totally clean from her waist up. No According, blood? Uh, yeah, nothing. There's nothing there. There's no stains. There's no nothing. There's She's totally clear. And that, according to the tests that Penn and Teller did, and also this other scientist, she should have been totally soaked in blood and stains everywhere. Her hat should have been blown off. She should have had everywhere. And there were other eyewitnesses in Parkland Hospital that, yes, she yeah, showed if, up if almost up. If the head blows up that way, right in front of her face, mm -hmm. all the pink, pink dress that she was wearing should have been completely covered. And soaked, and it's not. She sewed up totally pristine. This has bothered people for a long time. But now, again, we're, or if he is now has a shoulder wound, there is an explosion by his body. And that's where also there's other, uh, many of the eyewitnesses stated that they both saw and they heard an explosion or a firecracker inside the car. 
not it was didn't come out from you know like a gunshot and came in it was actual explosion and an actual firecracker they could hear inside the car could it have been inside the whatever she was wearing uh that's what we're going to get to so and so now we look at um the uh, jfk 10 and this is the official warren commission exhibit off to the left and now again we look at frame 314 and as a circular debris, which is interesting, is the explosion uh, uh, that occurred in 313 and also this circular debris only lasts one frame. The, the explosion lasts one frame and the circular debris lasts one frame and then disappears and doesn't come back. And it's my contention is, is that what we're looking at is there had to have been an explosion on the side of his head and they actually took frames out. And that's why it looks like his head is jerking really bad. And basically, there was an explosion on the uh, right side of JFK's head. And where did that explosion come from? Well, there's only one logical type of thing is that uh, Jean Hill, uh, who was an eyewitness, as you can see, she's standing there uh, in the Sapruder film. Uh, and after the first shot, she saw what she observed as a white dog. And my contention is this is probably a hand puppet that J uh, Jackie had. And then we also now roll down to uh, frame JFK 12. And this has always been a mystery amongst all of the JFK investigators. We see on the tarmac of Love Field, she has a puppet in her hand. It was given to her. With the flowers. No, 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 no. Nobody's ever been established. And I've also called uh, and talked with uh, 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 Lamb Chops because that's what she was uh, uh, nicknamed by the investigators, Lamb Chops. So I called the uh, creator of Lamb Chops, the daughter, and I said, is that Lamb Chops? She said, no way. She said, that is that had to have been a special made doll. She said, I don't recognize that doll at all in the 1960s. That was probably a one-of-a-kind type of doll. And so uh, here she is holding this one-of-a-kind type of doll in her hand. We now but, look, but she's almost like wearing it. Why? Well, well but also look at the left though on the tarmac of, of uh, on 312, uh, mm -hmm. JFK 312. She is now has it in her hand. And now in frame 311 of the Sapruder film, you can literally see now her left hand, and she's left-handed. Jackie was left-handed, is now on her husband's uh, right shoulder. Right. And you cannot see his bottom of his jaw. You can barely just see his nose. You can't see his earlobe. It's literally blocked off. And this is where a lot of the now uh, naysayers say, well, it's just this, this is just light and shadows. Well, her hand can't be that big to block off from his earlobe all the way down to his jaw. It had to have been something else there on her hand. It blows off. That's the firecracker that everybody hears blows off. And now what's interesting is that we have Nell Conley, who is sitting on the left side of the passenger seat in front of JFK. She should also have been splattered in blood, but she wasn't. Just like Jackie, uh, she also now does not have any type of blood splatter, nor does the inside of the car have any type of blood splatter in that type of pattern. So what happens is now this, what it looks like is, and where we're going with this now, is that there had to have been a pyrotechnics device inside of this uh, uh, puppet. It blows off. And now Nell Conley, after the shot that she said, I heard this you know, explosion shot. And then she said, uh, then uh, she said it was like a, a really strange thing. And this is her quoting her. She said, I was rained down on like somebody hit me with buckshot. It's like somebody took a shotgun and put it up into the air and then all the shotgun parts come falling on me. They were like shot, you know, like she said, I was feeling like a shotgun had been, you know, I was scattered with a shotgun. Roy Kellerman, who's sitting in the front seat said, this debris comes falling on top of me. And then you have Sam Kinney, who is uh, the driver of the secret service car. Uh, that's right on the bumper of the uh, presidential limousine. He says the same thing. This debris falls on top of him. You think it was a shotgun shell? 
No, I probably it was probably some sort of Hollywood pyrotechnics device, you know, just to give a. It was just basically a boom type of thing. It made a um, uh, you know, to give a, a fake of the of a head wound. So most likely it was uh, uh, some sort of modified type of pyrotechnics device used by Hollywood. Okay, and it just blew it off, and boom, there it goes. Uh, and now everybody thinks it's the fatal headshot. They've taken frames out to cover up. Uh, the actual, like in the tail end smoke that comes off of a pyrotechnics device. So they have to take those frames out because if they leave them in, I mean, you know, boom, that, that, that's it. The game is you over. You find the source, yes. Yeah. So you basically go back and look at it. So that's why there's only one frame of that circular debris and there's only one frame of the explosion. What about the piece of the skull that comes apart? Uh, again, uh, Jackie doesn't even, she, uh, when she testifies, she just says she didn't remember doing that. And also is that you go look back at all the eyewitness testimonies and, uh, it's the same thing happens again, just like grabbing for the throat. No, I'm talking nobody, about, I'm talking about the piece of skull that comes apart from the president's skull. And then she goes in the back of the car to grab it. That's what I'm talking about is that okay. uh, when she makes her testimony to the Warren Commission and also all the eyewitnesses that uh, make their testimony within the first year, nobody ever talks about Jackie going out on the car to re re retrieve a skull bone. Again, that was also trickery done uh, by the animation artists. She doesn't remember it and no eyewitnesses ever saw it. They did see her stand up. But nobody ever saw her crawl out on the back of the car. So uh, that's also there was a still picture taken of her going out of the back of the car. And what's interesting is the photographer also knew Sapruder. Uh, it's uh, the whole. That's a whole other issue we can talk about. That's we won't get into that now. But, but let me have a, I have a question. I don't mean to continue stopping you, but if I don't, yeah, no I, problem, I'll, no. I'll forget. But at the time, 1963, a lot of people still had cameras, film cameras. Mm -hmm. Why is it that we don't see that many people come out with their own versions? Was it because perhaps they were confiscated that day? Oh, yes. And that was one. Uh, there is a, a prominent eyewitness who was a 20-year-old uh, male. It was about ready, He was about ready to go in the military. And he was standing behind Zapruder with his camera. And uh, so he's taking his pictures. And now he's standing there. And this man approaches him with a shotgun, knocks him down on his rear end with the shotgun and says, give me that camera. And uh, the guy was like, you know, he was just flabbergasted. What, what, what? And so the guy and he said, as the guy is doing this, he's crying. <laughs> he said the, the, the guy was absolutely just crying. He says, give me that film. Give me that film or give me that camera. And he, he took the whole camera, uh, didn't even do the film. He just took the whole camera. So, yes, uh, there were other people that were there and their cameras were confiscated. Not to mention the ones that were investigating have been killed, but we can discuss that later. Yeah, and it's basically yeah. So uh, again, what we're looking at here is uh, the explosion, and the firecracker is exactly what the people saw, and that's they that's what they detailed, uh, that's what they saw. Many of the witnesses, and it was there was a firecracker going off on the on the right side of JFK's head. It was being it was ignited uh, by Jackie, and it was also being hidden then in the puppet. And uh, you know, so this now uh, Camelot takes a whole nother type of uh, viewpoint here because then uh, is JFK part of this? Definitely Jackie's part of it. But that's also why that when she goes up to the Warren Commission, her testimony maybe lasts at the very most 10 minutes. They give her a skate. She, they ask her almost no questions whatsoever. Uh, and then they ask her about, you know, you know, going out of the back of the car. And she goes, I don't remember doing that. You think she so that, was part of it then? Yeah, she had to have been. Yeah, so she knew uh, she was part of the whole thing. And again, uh, it was how much they practiced of this or whatever. Uh, was it practiced or was this like a firsthand type of thing? But basically now at the same time, we have the explosions going off. Obviously, where we're going here right now is they're trying to have him looking. He's already been shot in the shoulder, and which I don't think that that was part of the plan that he knew of. That's why also when he shouts, my God, I'm hit, he's like, you know, wait a minute, guys. <laughs> uh, this is not part of the plan here. And so basically then she blows off the uh, pyrotechnics device. Now it is all. Uh, wait a second. What do you think JFK thought was going to happen that day if he was part of the plan too? Uh, probably that it was supposed to be a drill. Everybody was told it was a drill. 
I think that if if uh, if he was part of it, which I, I think see. that it probably was, everybody told it was a drill. The only person who knew it wasn't a drill was Jackie. And so now we have – this is also part of the drill as we go now down to the next frame, and that's JFK 13. And again, this is a picture of the 100X limousine. And what I believe that also happened is that they had what we call the switchman. And we also had the handler. And uh, the the 100X was a huge uh, car and could also fit uh, uh, many, many pieces to it. Also, too, is that um, uh, it was modified. This was the, it didn't come right off the Ford factory. It was a Lincoln Continental, and it didn't come right off the factory. It was actually modified in many, many ways. And so there could have, it would have been a real, real tight squeeze. Yes, it would have been. But two other people could have been put underneath there. And so where there's two people that had to be involved, that was got handler. And first off, what he does. Inside the trunk? Inside the trunk. Mm-hmm. You had your replacement victim, and that's where they were told, they told this poor guy. I'm Again, I mean, this gets really kind of gruesome, but they told this guy, hey, you know, we're going to have this little fake shooting, and then we're going to switch bodies, and you're going to be part of this whole drill. And he, okay, yeah, great, no problems. And, of course, he has the same kind of bills on a, you know, as JFK, et cetera. He said, okay, yeah. And so the handler now is also one of the persons that knows that this is not a drill. So there's two people in the car, Jackie and him, the handler, know um, what's going on. So the first thing that happens is the handler has to silence the the, uh, switchman. And they does that probably with a 22 caliber type of pistol and, and shoots him in the throat. That immediately now he can't shout out. So basically the next thing he does is pulls out a 45 uh, pistol and shoots him blank, point blank, right in the forehead. And then the bullet goes down through the forehead and blows out the back of the head. It goes through the car and it ricochets off the street. And um, uh, again, now the, the as I said, that, that throat wound now fits in because uh, this Charles Baxter, who was my ne- uh, neighbor's two doors down when I was growing up, he worked on the throat. And when they first came to, he said that was a bullet entry wound. That was not an exit wound. And he was adamant about it. He was saying, and he stayed that all the way until he died, saying that was a ent- throat entry wound. So it makes sense then. They needed to silence him. Now they had the 45. They now put the bullet through his head. This matches totally of all the doctors who had a chance to look at the wounds in the head. This exactly fits in where they saw a wound on the forehead and it was blown out of the back. And there are numerous doctors at Parkland that said the same thing. What's also now is Dallas County uh, Sheriff Bill Decker was in a uh, uh, car in front of the limousine. And he then testified to the Warren Commission that he saw a bullet then ricochet off the street right near the car. But hold it right there because we have to separate both segments. This is, this is fascinating. I'm just thinking of all the possibilities and how the cultural editors have fooled us for so long. You think of 9-11 and you see those planes. It makes you wonder if those planes were even there. Yeah, basically, this was the illusion that they got off with. And believe it or not, what we're describing here also is I believe that this was the foundation for the television program Mission Impossible. And that's what, again, what the elite like to do is they're going to go tell you what they're going to do. Then they go out and do it. And then they'll go out and tell you how they did it. (laughs) And, And it doesn't matter what medium they use. They don't care if it's motion pictures, whatever it might be. Plausible deniability. Yes, and the basically, had this not occurred, uh, that there, the uh, the television program and the so- consequent movies, Mission Impossible, would have never uh, been established. But because they got away with this, uh, basically, this Mission Impossible, then they based the TV series upon it. So now Bill Decker sees this. Now hold bullet. it, hold it, because we have to separate both segments. We have to take a break to separate both. How can people learn more about your work, Brian, and anybody? Again, you can watch this presentation as we go along. But uh, tell people how can they get in touch with you, your work? 
uh, I guess you can go up to the My God I'm Hit. Uh, it's M Y G O D I M H I T dot com. My God I'm Hit. Uh, I have contact information up there. Also, my other website is Trivortex, T R I V O R T E X dot com. I also have uh, that information up there, or you can just do Brian, B R I N, at Trivortex, T R I V O R T E X dot com. And in a separate topic, if you want to learn more about Trivortex, listen to our Sanitas interview, which was about a year ago, I believe, is an excellent interview, too. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. A lot more when we return with Brian David Anderson discussing and dissecting the JFK assassination, things that you and I did not know. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now... We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. All free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words Ask of us here same high standards of strength and sacrifice which we ask of you. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, 
let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own.